This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this week's show, we're going to look at the best of historical writing for men and women and discuss books that bring alive the dramatic Napoleonic Wars and the Tudor period, but not in the stuffy, swatty, schooly, academic sense. No, no, no. Think history with all the trimmings. Yes, books that explore the dynamics of human psychology and the complexities of family and intimate relationships. So if you like your history well cooked and you're not scared of a bit of rough and tumble, well, you're in for a bit of a treat. We're going to take to the high seas and stride the boards with Jack and Stephen and discuss Patrick O'Brien's iconic Aubrey and Matron series of books. Yes, it's history at its best. Raunchy, bloody, political and hugely exhilarating. Columnist and writer Joe Shea joins me later to discuss one of the greatest bromances in modern literature. And for those who enjoy a spot of up-tempo royal history peppered with political intrigue, beheadings, lust and betrayal. Well, the good news is Britain's best-selling female historian Alison Weir walks us through the whiffy 16th century House of Tudor, the high point of the English Renaissance, through the eyes of the resilient and very shrewd Elizabeth of York. And it's all in there. Think Tower of London, Windsor Castle, gout and fancy dress. And of course, if you want to get in contact with this show, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. I'm sure there's plenty of authors that you'd like the show to take a look at. So please feel free to send me an email. Now on to the naughty Tudors. The Tudor dynasty ruled England, Wales and Ireland from 1485 to 1603, known for its intriguing monarch's ruthless behaviour and outrageous dirty tricks. Their dramatic personal and family histories have captivated the imaginations of writers playwrights and artists for centuries. Without doubt, the five sovereigns of the Tudor dynasty are among the most well-known in royal history. And while we're all familiar with the crazy antics of Henry VIII, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth I, some of the lesser-known Tudors make for very interesting reading. Alison Weir is the biggest-selling female historian in the United Kingdom. She has sold more than 2.3 million books. Now, Alison's speciality is medieval and Tudor royal families, and her hugely popular books include Eleanor of Aquitaine, Isabella of France, Elizabeth I, Mary Queen of Scots, and Lady Jane Grey. Her latest book, Elizabeth of York, The First Tudor Queen, takes readers on a fascinating journey through the treacherous court of Richard VII and his wife Elizabeth. It was this marriage which united the red and white roses of the Lancaster and York and saw an end to the bloody War of the Roses. Now, Elizabeth was quite a player in her own right and not to be underestimated. She once schemed to marry her uncle Richard III, who incidentally was a man probably responsible for the killing of her brothers, the princes in the Tower. Alison's new book, Book is categorised as popular history as it's layered with dramatic storytelling, colourful plots and detailed descriptions of the Tudor era. And while some historians have written off her work as just romantic historical fiction, I think they've underestimated the power Alison has in making history come alive. She's accessible, straightforward, familiar and really warm. Well, myself and Alison had a great chat earlier in the week about women and popular history. I began by asking her what it's like being Britain's most successful female historian. It's 
overwhelming. I had no idea until my publishers told me that that's what the statistics showed at a publishing party a couple of years ago. And they wanted me to put it on my website. I was just gobsmacked. And why do you think popular history sells so much? I use the word popular history advisedly because popular historians use the same sources as academic historians. It's just the way it's presented. I think history has a strong narrative and I think that's what makes it accessible. And I think it's popular because these are extraordinary lives. Think of the Tudors, for example. A king with six wives who beheads two of them, divorces three. A 17-year-old girl, Lady Jane Grey, who's beheaded after being queen for nine days. You couldn't make this up. And can you tell me a little bit about Elizabeth of York? It's your latest book. She's a curious and very intriguing character. She's quite an enigma, really. She is, and she's been overshadowed, I think, by the reputation of the queens of Henry VIII. But I think she's a very interesting character in her own right. And she's very important dynastically because she united the royal houses of Lancaster and York through her marriage to Henry VII. And it was in their son that the royal blood of Lancaster and York united. And that son, of course, was Henry VIII. So she is a very important person. She's also the daughter of Edward IV and the sister of the princes in the tower. Now, one of the things I was really interested to read in your book is her relationship with her uncle, Richard III, Mm. and the idea that she once planned to marry him. Yes, this has been the subject of much learned debate, as you can imagine. But I do think that there is a letter that suggests strongly that Elizabeth is pushing for this marriage. And one might wonder, why would she want to marry the uncle who she probably believes has murdered her brothers? And of course, many people saw this marriage as very incestuous. They weren't likely to get a dispensation for it. But I think Elizabeth thought that by that stage, she'd been in the sanctuary, her mother and sisters, they'd been declared bastards. They had very little prospects for the future. The king had said he'd marry them to gentlemen. This was a way of restoring her status and, more importantly, securing the future of her mother and her sisters. That women had to be very savvy in who they chose to marry to protect their interests and that of their families. I think, yes, one has to look at Elizabeth and any other historical figure in the context of their own world and to realise the constraints there were on women. Women didn't often have a choice in the husband whom they married. In Elizabeth's case, I think that she was ready to sacrifice herself to secure the future of her, not only her own future, but that of her mother and her sisters. And that's in keeping with what we know of her later on. One of the things I noticed when I was reading your book is that, you know, Elizabeth of York, before she got married and became queen, she was very much a commodity to be traded because she was supposedly going to marry different princes around the world. Yes, I mean, all princesses had a marriage arranged for them for political or dynastic advantage. Elizabeth was no exception. She was a very important little girl for a few years at least because until her mother bore a son, she was the heiress to the throne of England. And she was first betrothed when she was four. And by definition, her life was in danger from the moment she had her first breath. Not so, not so much. From the time she was four. And that's why her father betrothed her to someone who would stay loyal. Now, Alison, I think you're going to uh, do a quick reading from the introduction to the book. Yes, absolutely. Elizabeth of York's role in history was crucial, although in a less chauvinistic age, it would by right have been more so. In the wake of legislation to give women the same rights in the order of succession as male heirs, It is interesting to reflect that England's Elizabeth I would not have been the celebrated Virgin Queen, but Elizabeth of York. But in the 15th century, it would have been unthinkable.